0: Warren heard on KKW one hundred six point five FM Los Angeles one hundred two point three
2: FM Riverside and one hundred five oh AM Palm Springs. We're back in the House of Mystery on KKW eleven fifty AM Seattle. I'm your host Al Warren and Kevin is back. Hey, um, I am here. Yeah, Mister Sick Man. (laughs) Mister Flu Man. I can't believe how many people were sick this last week um, with the flu.
1: Oh, my Lord. Yeah, we had to reschedule an interview,
2: in fact. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, actually, even Dave was, yeah. So now, and we uh, we want to thank a couple of new stations, uh, KVFX 98.3 FM in Utah, as well as KYAH can't say that, Kya, in 5.40 (laughs) a.m. Salt Lake, because they've joined the family, and they're they're airing us now five days a week at four o'clock Mountain Time. It's fantastic to have some new listeners, new stations, and um, hopefully they'll keep listening. (laughs) Not with... now, uh, Now, today we are talking with Ron Francel. He is a noted author of several books, The Darkest Night, Morgue, uh, Delivered from Evil, uh, Outlaw Los Angeles, just an incredible amount of reading, you want to read, read his books. So uh, welcome Ron.
3: Well, thank you for having me and uh, hello to all your new Utah listeners.
2: Yeah, hopefully they uh, like us.
3: <laughs> us, let's hope, I'm sure they will.
2: Well, you know, uh true crime is a big thing everywhere, even in, even in uh Utah. And uh Yes it is. Now, did you know it's illegal to threaten somebody with an unloaded gun uh, in Texas?
3: No, I didn't know that, but uh <laughs> given the number of guns in Texas, uh I would say it's it, being illegal is the least of the, the, the person's <laughs> problem. <laughs> they think it'd be shot down by four or five bystanders before we get to the legal question. Oh,
1: so, uh, I, I start to say, is there such a thing as an unloaded gun in Texas?
3: Uh, true. I, 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 it, you, maybe it's illegal to have to point an unloaded gun because it's just stupid. Well,
2: I just, I just love it because now we get this from uh, Factinate. Which is a website that talks about uh um weird or old laws that are still on the books that haven't uh <laughs> haven't been updated. It's kind of crazy um some of them like that uh so I guess uh, you're in Texas, you carry a loaded gun all the time
3: well no i don't but but uh i'm I'm aware of all the people who do and uh it's a <laughs> uh it's, it's both frightening and comforting at the same time. <laughs> you know, if something's going to happen in the theater or in the restaurant, I'm I'm pretty confident that somebody in the room uh, can shoot back. Um, it's not going to be me, uh, <laughs> but I'm I'm sure they could be. But on the other hand, um, I'm not so sure of a lot of these people, so they they might be the problem more than the solution. So I don't know.
2: Yeah, I guess that would be a big problem in a sense. How would you determine who you can trust or not trust in a case like that? Well, sure. You know, that would be the the weird thing. I know in the last book that I finished that, that went out about the Australian killers, like the Port Arthur um, mass shooting, um, mm-hmm. th- that was a big problem when he was running around shooting people. In fact, people would stop because they thought he, the shooter was running to get away and they'd stop their car to pick him up, and then he would shoot them. So it's kind of... I think it confused a lot of people there, so... Uh,
3: I wrote about the uh, Luby's Cafeteria uh, massacre in 92, 91 or 92, here in Colleen, Texas, and in which um, a, a mass murderer named uh, George Hennard crashes his truck into the the Luby's cafeteria crashes through the plate glass window and, and comes to rest in the middle of the dining room. Uh, people are stunned by this, thinking somebody's had a heart attack, but in 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 a moment he gets out of his car and starts shooting people, uh, point blank. Uh, among the people in the restaurant is is a woman uh, named Susanna Hupp, and Susanna has a license to carry, but in Texas at the time, it was illegal to bring your gun into a restaurant. She she had it in her car, but not in her purse where it normally was. Uh, early in this massacre, she had the chance, uh, was only six feet away from the shooter, and had the chance to have shot him if she had had her gun. Um, she didn't. And he went on to kill twenty two twenty three people um, and and there's an example of the good guy with a gun might be able to limit the uh, the death the the body count if you will mm-hmm. um, if if they have that chance uh, in her she didn't have that chance uh, in Texas today she would. But uh, let's hope she doesn't have to. Uh, we so we have examples on both sides. Uh, we have the example of the the fellow who ended the uh, Sutherland the re- very recent Sutherland Springs massacre here in Texas. Uh, the good guy with a gun is real. It really happens. Um, it it doesn't. It's not as it's not as big a story maybe in the media, but. Uh, it does happen, and um, arguments can be made uh, for wider gun ownership. Um, I, I also hear the arguments against wider gun ownership. I, I, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not an ardent supporter or opponent of either, but as a student of mass murder for the last 10 years... Um, I, I see a lot of examples where wider gun ownership prevented deaths.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, am kind of the same way. I'm kind of in between. Uh, I hear both stories. I think it sort of has to be done to fit the country or the state that does it because some countries can, can, can work really, really well with, um, pretty strict gun control. Whereas I, I don't think sure. I don't think the states would get away with it. I don't think it would work.
3: Well, and I, I think it's the kind of uh, is a kind of decision that that should rest in state law. I, I believe what what uh, Massachusetts or Connecticut might want to do is certainly different than what Texas or Wyoming is inclined to do. Uh, I think that. Uh, in most cases i believe that kind of decision lies with the states um and certainly on crime uh, i uh, the, that those are the people who are responding are local law enforcement it, the fbi doesn't rush to the scene of a mass shooting unless the fbi office happens to be next door uh it's local law enforcement and i think that those kinds of those kinds of laws and those kinds of sensibilities lie generally with the states
1: now having said that um, I, I take it that you don't see any chance for uh, national reciprocity with everybody recognizing Kerry concealed
3: I, I you know I think there's some wisdom in it but I can't imagine um, Connecticut thinking that the guy to whom Texas gives right to carry a gun should be allowed to come to connecticut and um uh, and enjoy the same protections so i yeah i, I would give that a, a low chance um i i don't disagree with the idea but um again we get back to it's to individual states being able to determine uh how how that's going to go uh, I don't think we should um, inflict Texas's sensibilities on Connecticut or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Hmm.
2: So, you, when you when you write about um, mass crimes, what is it that you look for when you um, what what part of the story is is most intriguing to you?
3: Yeah, uh, the one. The, the book that I did about mass killings, that which included serial killers and mass murderers and spree killers, um, I was looking for one thing. I was looking for survivors who had put their lives back together. Uh, and that was a harder hunt than you might think. Uh, I was looking for people who exhibited that kind of resilience that we hope we would have, if we were in that situation, if we survived an attack by a, um, a a terrorist or a mass murderer or a serial killer, we want to believe that we could put our lives back together, restore some semblance of normalcy um, and and live out our days. The hard part of that was that uh, out of sixty survivors of mass murders over the past 70 years that I could identify, um, I would say that there were only between 12 and 15 that I would say had put their lives back together. So in that case, I was looking for a survivor who was reasonably readjusted to life. Uh, that's, That's a rare thing. Uh, in general when I write about crime though I'm looking for a bigger story I'm looking for something that reflects our our culture uh, our humanity uh, something more than just a salacious bloody story with shocking photos I, yeah. I'm, that that market exists and I don't I don't judge but I'm looking to tell a deeper, deeper story um that that has some literary uh uh, chances for me and and so in general i just want to tell a good story that's meaningful it's not just uh exploitive it 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 means something at the end yeah it it sounds Uh, like you but
1: (laughs) (laughs) well it, it sounds like you're wanting to write about the resilience of the human spirit after a tragedy
3: well, certainly in Delivered from Evil, that was a theme. That was the theme, uh, was resilience. And I, my, my interest, and many of my colleagues in crime writing's interest, is in the victim. Uh, it's, uh, the, the victim who dies is, can be very, very interesting, but the victim who survives, uh, is, has, has, uh, a quality to me that's fascinating uh in my book the darkest night about uh the crime a horrible crime against two of my childhood friends when we were kids has two victims sisters who were abducted and terrorized raped and 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 then thrown off a very high bridge into a very deep canyon um one dies and one survives and the book becomes ultimately about the one who survived and, and the horror of, of living after a crime. Uh, dying is bad enough. Living with the horror after a crime can be worse.
2: That, that must really kind of uh, devastate the community as well.
3: Oh, sure. I, I, I think that uh, the, the smaller the town, the more devastating uh, a horrible crime is. In that particular case, this is a crime that's alive in the memory of that small town, even today, 40-something years after it happened. Uh, in fact, the uh, New York Daily News just had a story about that crime this past weekend. Uh, it's 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 lying there very close to the surface, not only in the memory but in the history of the place. And I think that uh, the, the when you drop a stone into the water it it sends forth all these ripples. Was it the, the crime is a stone, and we drop it out there into our history and it sends forth these these ripples that reverberate over generations. Uh, into the future. Uh, uh, I'm on Facebook today, and um, uh, 40, I'm going to add it up here, 40, almost 45 years later, um, I've, I've had uh, a second and third generation of the killers um, uh, family reach out to me through Facebook, to modern technology and social media, uh with questions that are startling about is this in their DNA? Are, do they have tendencies? Uh, forty five years later, uh think about that. That and so the, the reverberation of these crimes over time is fascinating. And I'm not a I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a criminologist I'm not a sociologist I'm just an observer I'm a journalist um, but I'm fascinated by that and uh, I would like for sociologist and a, a psychologist and uh, a criminologist to, to to reach out to me and tell me why this is but from a storyteller's perspective um, it's important because it's reflecting us to us and, and uh, I think a book has no greater purpose, and maybe especially in true crime, than leaving us with something, something more than a titillation. Uh, I don't like the supermarket, the typical supermarket true crime, because I think it's too salacious and too exploitive. I want to tell a story, and I want that story to mean something, uh, and to reflect who we are so that if we need to, if we need to, we can change. Um, Truman Capogi started that. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, people like Vincent Bugliosi and James L Roy have continued that um, or did continue it. Uh, but uh, I, I, I think that's very important. I don't think true crime has, uh, can be just about, bloody pictures and salacious testimony and, and grim autopsy, um, reports. I, I, think it has to be, it has to speak to our hearts.
2: What do you think about the, um, reporting by, uh, groups that, um, suggest that none of these mass killings ever happened. They were false flags and, uh, Create, uh, false flags. Yeah, created by the government yeah. just to just to take away guns and or whatever the point point behind it would be. But basically, there are actors and and none of these things have happened.
3: As a journalist for my entire life, uh, any any manipulation of the truth is abhorrent to me. I uh, I don't care who you are, and I don't care what your position is. If you've manipulated the truth to make a point, you're just a common liar. And you want to be treated as a common liar. Uh, so any of those, I, I, regardless of the point they're trying to make, uh, make it with the truth or go away. It's unfortunate that, that technology and social media have given those people a place to stand, um, I, 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 I weep for us I weep for us, the readers and the listeners and the viewers who, who aren't sure now what's true and what isn't true um, and that goes beyond the false flag people and it goes into some of the mainstream media right now but uh, if, if we can't make our point with facts then the point shouldn't be made and that's just the journalist in me the old school journalist in me i probably couldn't get hired in a newspaper today with an attitude like that
2: <laughs> and they wouldn't let you in so they wouldn't so what do you think about that last one the, the vegas killing um there's been uh. so much talk about that do you feel like it was um, a cover up or uh, how did you read that?
3: No, I don't feel there's a cover up I, I, <laughs> You know what the, the, the mass murders in history from from nineteen forty nine when the first real public mass shooting was to today. so we'll, we'll use that as our as our frame of reference. We always um, latch onto to uh, the mass murderers that, that add some new little wrinkle. The 49 was Howard Unruh. This is the first time somebody walks around and kills people with a gun. This is huge. I'll, I guarantee you the same questions were asked in the Philadelphia newspapers the very next day that we ask now. We just ask them faster because we have that technology now. Uh, by 1965, when Charles Whitman climbs up the tower of the University of Texas and starts killing people, that becomes big news because he went up a tower. Um, 84, we have James Hubert. He goes into a McDonald's, a place where we're supposed to feel safe, and he kills a bunch of people. G- George Hinard in 90. 90- one or ninety-two, whenever it was, uh, drives his truck through the plate glass window of a of a cafeteria and kills people. Uh, Cho at, at uh, the West Virginia or Virginia Tech, I'm sorry, uh, it goes up and down the campus killing people. Uh, the guy in Las Vegas was really just the latest in that long that too long line of ordinary. Um uh, lunatics who who thought he could be somebody or be something or wanted to do something um and he did uh we don't know he died we don't we've we've seldom known the motives of these killers because they mostly die when they live and they tell us why they did it. We almost always have said. That doesn't make sense. That's stupid. Because it is. They're lunatics. They don't think logically. They don't think rationally. And we want to apply logic and rationality to these things. They don't exist. These are nutcases. They're whack jobs. Uh, And we're always disappointed uh, when we learn what motivated them to do something. we say it doesn't make sense. If we knew what the Las Vegas shooter's motive really was, we'd still be dissatisfied because it won't make sense. I guarantee you, it won't make sense. The fact is, he blew his brains out, and we don't have any evidence of his motive. That's not a cover-up, that's we don't know. That's not a that's not a conspiracy. It's just they don't know. Um, and and the fact is, that's been the experience of the last, you know, 70 years. Uh, we have seldom known. Occasionally, we've been so eager to know, we've made stuff up. <laughs> um <laughs> It, 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 the, the Howard Unruh, who actually lived in 1949, was said to be just a, a soldier with combat fatigue or shell shock or PTSD, which wasn't named at that time. Um, the fact is, that wasn't it at all. But that's still what people will say about it. People will say Charles Whitman climbed that tower in Texas because he had a brain tumor. Well, that. that, that it's not why he did it. They, they completely ignores an, a fabulously abusive childhood, uh, the mental problems that that went from here to there. Uh, you know, but we want easy, quick answers that make sense to us. The fact is, most of the time, they're they they're not quick, they're not easy, and they don't make
2: sense. Yeah, yeah. It's, it seems to it, well. It, it, I don't know for some reason it puts people at ease if they can just uh, come up with the answer. You know
3: that's right. Well want to know why is that's the most human thing that's uh, the most human thing. Why is a natural and a human question? I'm not a psychologist, as I said before. I'm a journalist, and I've spent these past 10 or 12 years wading around in these kinds of stories. Nobody. Nobody wants to know the answers more than the survivors and the loved ones of the dead people. And But uh, while it might be natural for us to want to know, we've got to be patient. We've leapt to those, cl- those uh, quick conclusions that I talked about, and we were wrong. And, and in our impatience, I think sometimes we've missed our opportunity to truly understand something about these killers. So uh, patience is warranted, but patience patience isn't something we do well, we humans. And certainly we modern media consumers. But uh, patience is exactly what we need right now.
1: Well, that's probably where conspiracy theories abound, because like you said, you know, what they do is utter madness. So the solution has got to be fast and just as equally crazy.
3: That's right. Exactly. You're absolutely right. And, you know, my book, Delivered from Evil, which was about the survivors of mass killers, came out on the same day of the Gabby Giffords shooting in Tucson, Arizona. Um, And because of that, well, now i the, 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 because of that coincidence. Uh, I'm I'm fresh meat for uh, <laughs> national news programs, among them CNN, who call is calling three and four hours after the crime, wanting to interview me. But they wanted me to comment on how the killer was inspired by right wing talk radio. to attack a demon.
1: Rush Limbaugh
3: made me do it. (laughs) And they referred me to his online writings and everything. And I I looked at his online writings, and I really saw no evidence of that. They saw what they wanted to see, but I didn't see that evidence. Instead, I got on that night, and they asked their question, and I said, No, I think he's a garden-variety lunatic with a gun. He, he, He... he wasn't aiming at the congresswoman uh, in particular. He shot a, a Republican judge. Um, he shot a bunch of people that he didn't know what they were. Uh, he's a garden variety lunatic with a gun. They said thank you and cut me off. <laughs> <You> know so, <laughs> well yeah uh, that's fine. And now we know Jared Lochner was a garden variety lunatic with a gun. It had nothing to do with Rush Limbaugh or right-wing talk radio or, or political hate. Yeah. No, um, no but he was...
2: was in, Jared Locker was MKUltra. <laughs> yeah, because I got, I, I got attacked on that um, from a cop that I was uh, interviewing <laughs> who, who said that, you know, the um, same as the Vegas shooter was, uh, was an anti-Trump and he was uh, brainwashed by Antifa anti-fascist and uh, they called him on the phone in the hotel and said a word to him and then that made him blast off and I said that I told him that I thought that was absolutely ridiculous you know uh, but he said that it's people like me that are ruining the country (laughs) I was like well
3: Well, (laughs) wear that badge of honor
2: (laughs) Well, I, I was just asking the question of, it's like, well, where did you get that from? And, and w- basically, w- there's no evidence of that. You might think that, and you might think he looks like that or whatever drew you to that conclusion, or you heard it on Alex Jones or whatever. But <laughs> how about some some evidence before you do that? I also heard that Hillary Clinton was on the fourth floor of the mandate Bay, and she's the one that called him. So. Okay.
3: You know, I, I, I the, the, the media in the wake of all of these things has tended, and I've seen it going back to 1949, has always been breathless. It's always been impatient. Uh, and it has made people breathless and impatient. And we can go down the list of, of these terrible things uh, and, and see in the backwash... We can see some of the lunacy of our own, of our own culture in dealing with it. Um, that's why I say patience is warranted. We, if we can take a deep breath and let these cops do what they do, um, we more often than not will, will get answers or we will be convinced that there are no, that there are no answers to be gotten. In the Vegas shooters case, I think we might never know. His motive, uh, and and to a certain degree, I don't really care because
0: whatever they
3: come up with, uh, whatever if they did have a motive, whatever they would tell us, we would simply not be satisfied with. I uh, that's the fact, and and Please. so I, I I'm I'm not. I'm not especially interested in the motive of these people if, if, if we can know it then fine if we can trust it then fine if we can use it to prevent another one then fine but if we have to argue about it then then it's not it's not really going to help uh, our point in knowing the motive of of charles whitman or george Hennard or cho or james huberty or the vegas shooter should should be directed solely to, to preventing this thing from happening in the future um most of the time it's not going when we know if we know a motive it's not going to be helpful to us uh to know it because it's going to seem rather weird so uh, I, uh, to, to your original question, um, making stuff up never helps. Using the platforms we now have in social media and, and technological media uh, can be good, but unfortunately there's just a lot of people out there that use it for bad purposes, and, and that's too bad. Um, but that's a reality.
1: Now, would you would you say that there's a difference, though, between trying to understand the motives of a spree killer or, and I'm, I'm trying to word this very carefully, and, and understanding what they're doing? Uh, for, for example, you know, okay, we've got the Mandalay Bay shooter. We, we understand what happened. But then you've got the Malvo case, where, where you've got an adult that's almost mentoring, almost trying to recreate himself in a younger man, and, and right. takes this boy on a, on a shooting spree that crossed several states. Uh, do we not need to understand how that can happen? Well, what, what made Malvo so vulnerable, and what was it about him that he got selected,
3: i think the division that you're trying to make in your question is appropriate that that um in cases like the the muhammad malvo case uh it is important for us to know it's it's uh in this case we have both of them and we can analyze them and we can we can explore their psychology and and we can come to some of these conclusions uh, i guarantee you that you and i and those like us in in the crime writing or the crime psychology world uh find this important the great bulk of people stopped at black men arrested for shooting white people mm-hmm. <laughs> and and they drew their conclusions with that knowing Muhammad and Malvo's psychology and their reasons and their motives and their their uh, their methods uh, is important absolutely important and it's fascinating like I said earlier knowing that, that, the the story is fascinating to me because it reflects us. I took that a step further, by the way, and believe that John Allen Muhammad was was influenced by a, an earlier mass murder in New Orleans in 1973 uh, that he saw as a little kid, and and it was a racial incident, and and I believe that Muhammad was influenced by that, uh, but. Uh, the the example that you pick is, is outstanding because there's where we can actually use what we learn to maybe forestall this in, in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot was learned from John Allen Muhammad and Boyd Malvo. Uh, A lot has been done to adjust. Uh, A lot has been done to improve our uh, methods for tracking uh, serial killers like that, so um, it, it, I don't mean to leave the impression that it's not important to know. I just, I just trying to make the point that for the great bulk of people, um, knowing the motive of the Las Vegas shooter. Will be meaningless because they'll scratch their heads and say, "Well, that doesn't make sense."
1: Yeah, it will make
3: sense. <laughs> Ops, and to hotel keepers and to crime writers. Um, maybe not, not the logic of it, but we'll see how it can help. To know uh, everybody else, and and actually, we're past it. I I I, I believe we're past it that knowing the motive of the Vegas shooter uh, was, was is old news now. It was a news story for a few days. And then everybody's attention shifted to something else. And if we come up with a story now, we find a note that he wrote or a diary entry or a video or whatever that he left, uh, and we can say, you know, with some assurance that this was his motive. A lot of people go, hmm, that's interesting. You know, what did Trump say today? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that'll be the That's. It, it, I sound cynical because I am cynical yeah. about the general public and its lack of attention. It's, it's the shortness of its attention um, and the shallowness of its understanding. I, I should say the shallowness of what they want to understand. You know that's that's more it. They want they want Malvo and Muhammad boiled down into ten words, and they want it to be racial. And it's never uh, that simple. <laughs> never that simple. It's never that simple. So uh, when we talk about the Vegas shooter, when we talk about the Sutherland Springs shooter, uh, and 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 that their ilk. Um. We uh, we don't want an exhaustive explanation. We're like Hollywood. We want a twenty-line summary of this movie. We don't want we don't want the script. You know, <laughs> I don't want the book. Uh, I want the twenty-line summary. The twenty-word summary.
1: Well, well, that brings so, up a really a really good point, Ron. Is it have we been trained that way that an entire crime? can be solved in 44 minutes. You know, it's an episode of CSI.
3: Yes. There's such a thing that exists in criminology and in jurisprudence, known as the CSI effect, where it mainly, I think it has a lot of applications, but it was mainly introduced to describe juries who say, what do you mean you don't have DNA evidence? I mean they have it on, on CSI and they give it every day. How come you don't have it? Or or how come you couldn't find out what kind of pizza he ordered on july sixth, nineteen sixty eight? I mean, Abby on NCIS can call that up in ten seconds. This <laughs> this yes. expect, hey. expectation a common people juries specifically. Uh, that technology is far greater than it really is, um, is known as the CSI effect. So, absolutely. And when we're sitting at home or talking to our friends, um, forget being on a jury, we have this expectation that Hollywood was telling us the truth. When when really, Hollywood n- almost never tells us the truth. <laughs> but we did get that. We think that they couldn't put it on there if it wasn't true. So, yes, absolutely, we, we are trained to think that we can determine what pizza you had 38 years ago on a specific date because we think that was stored someplace in a computer. And if that's true, then, any, then some benevolent hacker can get in there and find out what it was.
1: Yes, Mm
2: -hmm. Well, but hasn't that been kind of going on for years because the whole JFK assassination, um, I think a lot of the, I don't know how a a lot of what's behind it is people thinking, how could we not know what happened? How could someone shoot the president? And we don't know. There there has to be a conspiracy. Isn't that sort of a kind of. we do know.
3: I mean, it's it's this unwillingness that some punk, um, some deluded punk with a gun could change history. So we say the Warren Commission says Lee Harvey Oswald killed JFK, and here's how he did it. Well, we don't want to believe that. So we say, well, we don't have the facts and we we make up stories.
1: Um, But it was that easy with Lincoln. What's the difference?
3: Uh, Lincoln, uh, there, uh, there are Lincoln conspiracy theories. Now, we're not generally familiar with them, but there are Lincoln conspiracy theories. And it's just, we've just moved on from Lincoln. We haven't moved on from JFK. We're not going to move on from Donald Trump. You know, not no. in our lifetimes. No. Um, and so, you know, history has a way of lapsing, and we have a way of ignoring history. So, But there are Lincoln conspiracy theories. Uh, so I, but the, the, in JFK's case, we do know what happened it's just the, the 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 insistence by the public on not believing that that says that causes us to say we don't know the facts and the fact is we do know the facts <laughs> the facts are pretty solidly uh known and and verified but we just are, are reluctant to believe that a punk with a gun, a nobody, a little man, changed history by shooting a great man. And there had to be something more. I've said it many times. Maybe the CIA did want to kill him. Maybe the Cubans wanted to kill him. Maybe, maybe uh, the Russians wanted to kill him. They might have all had gunmen in Dealey Plaza that day. The fact is, they all missed except Lee Harvey Oswald. So, <laughs> there might have been all those all those enemies willing to target and wanting to target JFK, but they all missed that day except for Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, so I, I I think a lot of this is not a flaw in in the crime solving and the crime uh, the sleuthing, but a crime in the crime uh, 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 a flaw in the crime consumer. <laughs> you know, I. I I run into it with my own stories where you, you, you see the pieces of paper, you see the pictures, you know what happened and you say it. And somebody will step forward and say, that's not true. Something else happened because that's what they want to believe. Um, that sounds uh, (laughs) nice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then they come out with their own book maybe. And, and, uh, Uh, How how many books are out there on the JFK assassination? It it should be telling how many pages of secret, quote-unquote secret documents, um, were just released here a few months ago on the JFK assassination. And the most interesting one was about Martin. The most interesting among those documents was about Martin Luther King's sexual appetites. Yeah had nothing to do with JFK's assassination. And there was nothing else that we learned about, nothing new that we learned about JFK's assassination in those other 29,999 documents. But they were secret, and and that alone caused a lot of conspiracy theories. But the fact is, uh, there, there was nothing there. There was no there there.
2: Yeah, actually, in in your book, Morgue, you uh, you had a chapter on that where they uh, when they actually dug up uh, Oswald's body because they thought it was not his body or something, right?
3: Right. Well, so again, uh, a conspiracy theory. Um, a a respected British journalist named Michael Eddowes, uh wrote a book and floated. It made a, a very eloquent case that Oswald, when he went to Russia, uh, stayed in Russia, and then in his place was sent a look-alike uh, Russian agent, wh- whose whose purpose ultimately was to kill Kennedy. Um, and and he makes that case. Well, the the only person in the world to whom. That, that could matter, uh, and get something done was Marina Oswald, the widow. And she, she didn't buy into it 100%, but she bought into it enough that she said, let's exhume the body and prove that it is or it isn't. You know, there was, there was talk about how they had burrowed in from a, another grave and done it sideways and things like oh, that. Oh, wow.
1: <laughs> they
3: fracked so Oswald. <laughs> my, my co-author on the book, Morgue, um, Dr. Vincent DeMaio, was uh, on the team that dug up the casket of Lee Harvey Oswald and peeked inside and did more than that. They they took the, the, the remains that were there and uh, used them to determine if it was Lee Harvey Oswald's body or not. Now, since you haven't heard any stories about how it wasn't, I think you could safely assume that they found that Oswald was buried in Oswald's grave. Um, and they did it with uh, sort of classical Sherlockian... Uh, forensics, they didn't have DNA, they didn't have, you know, things. They just used an X-ray machine and and their own eyes. So, uh, but they did confirm it was Oswald. Uh, there you have uh, a conspiracy theory that was, you know, sold probably at least hundreds of thousands of books. Um, it just was... Eddowes pulled it out of his southern quarters. <laughs> That's all. Well,
2: how do, how do we know they didn't just kill Oswald when they when they were going to uh, exhume his body, and then they just exchanged the bodies before they could exhume it?
3: Well, <laughs> well you know, spoken like a true conspiracy theorist,
2: <laughs> well,
3: we don't know, of course, <laughs> but... And... and but see, that's the classic conspiracy theory thing, that when we prove one isn't true, then, then, then usually they take it one, one step further and, and say, in a way that says, well, your proof is suspect because this new thing, this new idea, this new theory. And we could go and prove that one wrong, and then they would take it one step further. They, they, they just keep moving the goalposts. Until finally, you've got something that, that ultimately couldn't happen. I mean, not, not, not if you had a thousand monkeys typing. They would, they would come up with Macbeth before they would actually uh, solve this crime the way you would like it solved. So, uh, have there been cover-ups in criminal cases? Yes. Yes. Um, they're not usually they, you're giving you're giving government or law enforcement more credit than they deserve for being that smart in most cases yeah. um, <laughs> that that's the usual thing the more people that get involved if you think about kennedy how many different people would have had to be and have would have had to be involved in that kind of a thing and yeah. that something years later we still don't we still haven't heard anything from any of them that says oh hey i have proof that it didn't happen that way
2: yeah yeah so, it's, it's an endless cycle it really, is. It what really was, is what was what was the most um let's say of, of the books you've written what was the most I don't know, I don't want to say shocking, but what, what has stayed with you the longest out of all those books?
3: Well, I, I think The Darkest Night, was because it was so intimate to me and because it was so personal, these were two young girls who were my next-door neighbors, and we were all innocent. And because it so vastly and swiftly changed the culture of this little town where we lived, um, that is, is probably by definition the most personal and continues to be the most, uh, influential to me. Um, I, I think that, uh, in Delivered from Evil, I went out to find these survivors to see what we could learn from them. Because we've all, we've not all been, um, uh, Victims of a of a mass killer or would be victims of a mass killer of some kind, but we've been divorced We've not gotten the job that we have our own disappointments and our and our own traumas
2: That's that's the work
3: As you know as a writer that writing is fun Having written is more fun
2: Yeah (laughs) I agree with that well, Ron, it's always good having you on. It's always good conversation. We can talk about almost anything.
3: And yes, we can. We, I, I think yeah, we, we almost did. It.
2: I think I, almost, I only shocked you once. So, um,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> well, it's been another good episode, and uh, uh, we hope you continue to listen. And uh, our guest today has been Ron Francel. We'll have his books up on the website as well. And thank you very much. Ron, thank you. And,
3: you know, again, good luck. We love being on your show, and I'm glad to hear you're adding listeners everywhere.
1: To find out more about our show, guests, or listen to a previous show, visit our website at www.somethingweirdmedia.com.
3: The mission has been completed. The end. By George,
0: he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you.
2: If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production
0: of Something Weird Media. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.